Well, let me welcome you again to Church of the City. My name is Russell. I am the teaching pastor here. Um, and our time together, while short, um, is intended for us to, to be at the center, like Sarah said, of something that is bigger than we are. Uh, the language we use is that this church is wrapped up around Jesus, or Jesus of Nazareth, the teachings of Jesus, hope of Jesus, however we want to put words to that. But for us to be at the center of that kind of grand concept takes some intentionality. And so for us, that intentionality comes in the form of actually sharing the same space, of actually choosing to, to move our bodies, to bring our minds with us, to engage on a soul level in the same place at the same time. Uh, a phrase that has become helpful for me, and maybe it's one that annoys you, I've heard from several people that it does, which gives me some pleasure, by the way, um, that we would share the same air. Uh, if you think about it, most of the air you've breathed in your life uh, has been breathed by somebody else, which disgusting, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I cannot stand people breathing in my face. Uh, for a minute, when my daughter was born, I could deal with it on her because it was like so lovely, like baby breath, right? And then she became two, and the world just changed. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it any longer. The reality of actually sharing air with someone else is kind of like this gritty version of the way humanity works, that we, we kind of get ourselves on other people, and they kind of get on us, and we, we share contact and relationship and conversation and all of it. And oftentimes, I think culturally, uh, for us as Americans, uh, largely as Americans in this room, we isolate. Uh, we tend to gravitate towards loneliness. We tend to be on our own. And we've, we find a lot of, um, I would call pride in that, that we can do life alone. And yet when we say we're wrapping our life around Jesus of Nazareth, we have to examine those typical cultural traits that we have, like being alone. And to choose to be with other people, choosing to share air with other people, choosing to engage life alongside of others, specifically at a time like this, becomes part of this intentional practice. It's intentional part of the way that we live where we would say, it is important for me to be with other people who are struggling with the same struggles, who are trying to understand the mind of this great God that is in some ways very unknowable to try to wrestle with what does it mean to follow this God that we're still trying to figure out who this God is. To be with people doing the similar kinds of things becomes hugely important. And so for us, we, we commit as, as much as we possibly can to spend time together on Sundays, wrapped up around Jesus, sharing the same air, walking the same road. So welcome. Welcome to that moment in this week. Now, for us, one of the pieces of sharing the same area, being wrapped up around Jesus, is opening the scriptures. Now, Sarah, um, my co-pastor, our executive pastor, um, started this series last week that we're going to be spending the next few weeks in. We have spent significant time as a church community in what's called the New Testament, uh, which is about a quarter of the scriptures, and it is hinged just very overtly on Jesus. It's the storyline um, through narrative from four different people's perspective of what Jesus did, who he was, and what significance it had. And the rest of it um, is letters written between people and churches trying to wrestle with the implications of God showing up in flesh and bones on earth. But there's a whole like section, huge, massive section of our scriptures that, that predate the arrival of Christ on earth, and we call that the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, um, what it is, it is the centerpiece of Scripture for God's people 
um, as he pulled them together, the Jewish people, uh, the Israelite community, following this uh, long lineage of people way back to um, Abraham and Sarah and moving forward through time. The whole goal of this particular people group was to bring God's goodness to earth um, and expressly through Jesus of Nazareth. Now, a lot of us uh, in, as Americans and as American Christians and dealing with our faith, we've had these touch points with the Old Testament that we may have some like familiarity with some pieces of it, but not all of it. Some of it feels very obscure. Um, I had a professor once who said, you know, most of us understand where Genesis is. And then you might know, you know, where the next couple books are. And then after that, um, it feels like someone just dumped a big pile of books in the middle of the room and said, hey, go find Ezekiel. Like, cool. Couldn't if I wanted to. My life depends on it right now. And I could not actually find that book in the Bible. And for many of us, that's our relationship with the Old Testament. Is it confusing? It's confounding. Um, and it feels very disconnected from reality. It's not, it doesn't feel like it's relevant to what's going on. Let me assure you that couldn't be further from the truth. Simply because we have not engaged with it doesn't make it irrelevant. In fact, this particular uh, piece of scripture that we're looking at, the storyline of Ruth that is named Ruth, um, it is this wildly powerful account of God's goodness arriving in the lives of a few people. Now, one of the working definitions we have for the Bible, for scriptures here at Church of the City, is that the Bible or the scriptures are this intersection or the contact patch between God's activity and the human story. What we see in the storyline of scripture is these moments when God is doing something with people where they're, they're actually intersecting one another. And it, it would do us so much good to spend some time looking at these contact patches, these intersection points where God is working something out among humans. Even if the, the human story that we get a view of is kind of isolated and it's brief as the book of Ruth is. What we see here is we see something of the nature and character of this relationship between God's activity and people, which I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of my journey in faith as an adult has been a struggle looking for places and times when God would intersect my life. When I could see the handiwork or the fingerprints or the movement or the providence of God doing something where I am. And, and oftentimes I think I overlook it other times, I think I ignore where I can actually sink my teeth into, like other people's stories. So as Sarah laid out last week, this particular account finds itself in a period of the history of Israel called the Judges. Now, uh, many of you have heard in broad strokes of the kings of Israel. If you haven't, now you have. There were kings in Israel at one point. Prior to kings governing in Israel, um, there was this very um, interesting system of governance. And the system of governance um, depended on... God, this, uh, this theological understanding and personality, presence, the attribution of the creation of all things, at the centerpiece of the Israelite community. But there's an issue with that, much like I articulated just now. Like people are looking for more structure than simply saying we are a theocratic kind of community that just focuses on God or has a God at the centerpiece. We need something more practical than that. And so what God had given them was um, this, this system of, of judges. And in this system of judges, there were local, basically think of it as like governors um, in areas, taking care of, of different issues and different peoples at different intervals. It wasn't highly structured. It was oftentimes very um, re reactionary to the situation going on in the, in the time and place. And what we see in the beginning of the book of Ruth, as Sarah pointed out last week, is we are in this kind of what feels like haphazard moment in history for Israel. 
when things aren't really well defined as far as this is who we are, what we are, yes, it's a large people group. Yes, we have clans. Yes, they all have territory in Palestine, the land that God's given them. And beyond that, I think there's just a significant appreciation on our part to say this isn't a highly structured society. It's fairly loose. Um, it's a fairly familial, clan-oriented kind of community. Now, that becomes important for us because where Sarah pushed in last week, where the story begins, is it begins at a moment when the people in Palestine are undergoing famine. And if you think of, of what's going on, and as Sarah unpacked this, it was, it was brilliant. We oftentimes don't think at length on what would motivate us to leave our home or leave our community or leave a job or leave family. Because we have so much. For us, the margins are so big on our security and safety, relatively speaking, that it, is, it takes such mental exercise to think about what would it take to unwedge me from Portland, Oregon, and send me across an international border somewhere like Canada. Um, although there, there are many things that would actually do that, we tend to stay removed from them. It was so surprising among many Europeans as World War II developed that they would actually have to leave their homes because of the war. And that's oftentimes the case on things like war. People, for a long time, will stay much longer than they ought to because it is unsafe under the belief that things are still fairly secure. But this is a moment in the history of Israel when things are so unsafe and people are so vulnerable that radical action has to be taken. And what we, what we see at the beginning of the story, what we saw is we saw the beginning of the story unfold around a couple, a woman named Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. And they leave Palestine, Israel, they leave their clan, and they go across the international border to Moab. And the famine has, has prompted that. And they walk the equivalent of about 100 miles. Uh, and it took them most likely traveling in a group of people somewhere around a week to walk that far. They're very serious about what needs to happen in order to find security. Now, we're going to pick up the storyline there in Moab. But the other key piece, if you weren't here last week, that you have to understand that is setting up the stage for where this storyline is going, is that when they get to Moab, things don't get better. Yes, they have food, but relationally, things begin to go off the rails. Naomi and her husband have some, have some sons. Um, they marry off their sons to some Moabite women. So now they are a multiracial family. They've crossed international lines. They've been refugees. Um, they are struggling to make sense of what to do next. And what they end up doing is they end up staying in Moab for a considerable amount of time. So long, in fact, that all of the men in the family die. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies, and the two sons die, leaving three women. An Israelite woman who, woman who is now a refugee in Moab, and two Moabite women who are the daughters-in-law to that woman. Now, this is hugely important because we, we can't go any further without appreciating how the situation is sitting as we get into this particular piece of scripture today. Where we start our story today is among three extremely vulnerable women. This is the story of Ruth. Three women caught in an extremely difficult situation trying their absolute best to make the best decisions they possibly can in light of their situation. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. We are going to be in Ruth. If you don't, then I'll provide for you on the screen the text. I highly encourage, if you have a Bible, bring it with you. Um, or if you want to use your phone, do that, just so you become familiar with where things are for yourself. Um, but this particular story, um, as it unfolds here, 
I'd like you to, as, as much as I want you to read, this is a narrative, and I'd like you to, to somehow try your best to listen to the story, to hear the story, to, to ingest it as real people's account. So we're going to pick up in verse 6. When Naomi, and remember she's the matriarch of this situation, she's the uh, Israelite woman, heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, stop there for a second. Naomi hatches a plan. And on the outset, it sounds like a really good, simple plan. They have been in Moab. She's been in Moab for a significant amount of time, at least 10 years, probably longer. Um, and she has made life there. She's established herself there. She's taking care of these two younger Moabite women. And she hears that back home across the international border is uh, things have gotten better. Uh, that The famine's turned around and there's food back where, uh, where she calls home. And so she hatches a plan with these two younger women and says, let's go home. Now, this is what's striking here. And we have to appreciate this. It's her home and not these two daughters-in-law. So the outset here, it, 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 it feels like things are going kind of the way you'd expect. The woman who has a bit more prominence and power in the scenario is saying, here's what we ought to do. And the two younger women listen. They begin to pack their stuff up and they go out to the road that would lead them back to Judah, back to the place where Naomi is from. Now, this, this plan that she's hatched, it evolves here. And you have to catch what happens next as this unfolds in order to appreciate what's going on in this moment of the storyline. Verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud, and they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. So Naomi has a plan, right? She's, she's hatched this plan. I'm going to tell these younger women, we're going to my home. We're, we spent a lot of time in Moab. We're going to go back to Israel. She gets them all packed up. They pack up whatever homestead they had, and it most likely was very modest. Remember what Sarah said last week. These women have lost their husbands. In a patriarchal society, that means you've lost all prominence, you've lost your capacity probably to earn wages, and you're living at the margins of society. It would be very advantageous for Naomi to go back to her, her own people group. Even though her husband is dead, she probably sells relatives that she can go back to. So for her, this might make sense. I'm going to go back to where it's a bit more secure and safe, where I can actually put ends together. And she, she has a conversation with the younger women saying, let's all go. She gets them packed up. They all go out on the road. And when they get to the road, she lays it on them. This isn't my full plan. We're not going back to Israel. I'm going back to Israel and you're, you're staying here. Go back to your mother's home. Go back so that you can remarry Moabite men and that so you may find rest here. It was wild in this, in this story, in this account. A couple of things. One, I don't know what to do with. Um, there's a ton of debate over why Naomi would say, go back to your mother's homes. That would be, that's very irregular, to be perfectly frank with you. In a patriarchal society, and even in the scripture as a whole, written in, in the context of the patriarchy, everything depended on, on being a father, on, on who your lineage is there. And it would make sense that 
the, the parents would be represented by the male party of these two young women. So there's something going on here that is challenging to deal with, and I actually don't know what the implications are that Naomi says, go back to your mother's home. It may be something that only Naomi knows and that we'll have to figure out at a later date. But more importantly, what we see in Naomi at this moment is something that becomes hugely important as the story goes on. I was told growing up that the book of Ruth is a love story. And I was told it's a love story between Ruth and the man she marries, a guy named Boaz. That'll happen later. Spoiler alert. <laughs> the reality is, the book of Ruth is a love story. But it's not a love story with Ruth and Boaz at the foreground. They become part of the narrative between these women. Between Naomi and her, her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. What we see in this moment is an exchange of this kind of love. Think about this. It takes a little bit of mental agility here, but think about this for a second. Naomi's been living in a vulnerable situation for an extended period of time. And for the good of her daughters-in-law, she has stayed there with them in Moab. The opportunity now has afforded her to go somewhere where she's less vulnerable, to go home. And the safest way to do that, the safest way to travel as three women would be to stay together as three women who are vulnerable. She gets to the road that would lead her, along with the daughters-in-law, home, her home. And she tells them, don't go with me. She looks at them and says, it is better for you to stay. It is good for you to be here. You'll find rest and you've been kind to me. Now go be kind to other people. Make your home here where you, where you have home. At great risk to herself. Do you realize what, what Naomi's doing by saying that? She has a hundred mile walk ahead of her on her own. As a single woman who's lost her husband and her sons, who's been living on the margins for a significant amount of time. Yes, there might be safety and security at the end of that road. There also may not be. She stands there and looks at these two women and holds her own vulnerability. Says, I will remain vulnerable for your benefit, for your good. And she tells them, go back home. It's better for you to stay. And strikingly, these two young women who are deeply attached to Naomi argue with her. They fight with her and say, through tears, no, we are following you. We are going to go with you back to your home. And the story continues. Pick it up in verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and they gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Can you feel the heartache of this exchange between these three women? Can you feel how demanding this decision is right now as they stand on this road, deciding which way on the road they're going to go? 
where before they've been making decisions together, go in the same direction. Here, Naomi is saying, we have to split up. What's been safe for us, what's been normal for us, what's been good for us is no longer the case. We have to go different directions. And she, she builds a case for it, right? She says, well, this thing that's logically, we live in this system where you need husbands. I can't give that to you. I'm too old. I can't, even if I got married right now, had a couple boys, are you going to wait until they're old enough to be your husbands? That's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. This, this whole scenario, the situation we're in, is an impossible situation. And she's trying to convince these two younger women to take their best chance at finding security and rest and getting away from their own vulnerable situation. And she's doing it. She's arguing, remember, by giving her, her own vulnerability a place to remain. By choosing to embrace the fact that this is not going to be the best situation for her. In that argument, she says something that is profound. And she'll say this again in our next section. The beginning of the section said she heard there was food in Palestine. The Lord had blessed Palestine. There's something good at God's hand going on back in Israel. But here, in her own words, she says, I am bitter. This whole thing is a hugely difficult situation. But the Lord himself has turned against me. She's recognizing this is not how this was supposed to go. And she attributes that to you somehow, some way, questioning where is God in all of this? What is his role in all this? Is he the one who's brought all this? He's not taking care of us. He's not blessing us. I am bitter over this. I'm bitter over the decision whether to take you with me and take you away from family and in your future or to leave you and leave myself in this scenario. None of this is good. It's all bitter. And wildly, these two young women make two different decisions. And to be perfectly honest with you, I, I don't fault either of them for the choice they made because they were put into an impossible situation. One daughter-in-law, Orpah, decides to go back to her family and stay in Moab. That's the best she could do in light of the circumstances. But Ruth clings to Naomi. She clings to her and holds on to her. This is a point in this particular story where I have to make a confession to you. All week, this passage has been really challenging for me. And I've been trying to put a finger on it trying to understand why this is so difficult. I actually told Sarah uh, when we were talking about this passage on Monday that I was extremely jealous that she got to teach the first one last week, and I was really not looking forward to teaching this section. And again, I couldn't really put words to it until later in the week. And just full confession to you, I think one of the challenges as I sit here in front of you trying to unpack this piece of scripture is the fact that I have never been a woman in a vulnerable situation before. My own privilege, my own station in life, my own gender identity, my experiences, my ethnicity, my education, are all standing in the way of me really trying to get at a spot where I understand the gravity that these three women, gravity situation they are put into. To be really honest with you, I have had limited experiences with being vulnerable. Sure, we've all had vulnerable moments. We've all had things that have created vulnerability for us. But I've never stood on this road or anywhere near this road where they are. And I think when we, when we are willing 
to not just close ourselves off to that kind of thinking and those feelings that come when we can appreciate that there's scenarios that people are put into that are far more challenging or difficult or just different than our own versions of difficulty. When we can say, without hesitation, I will continue to look at this hard situation. This is the place where we have the opportunity to grow vicariously through other stories. Sarah and I were talking about this uh, a few weeks back. Um, I'm a bit of a news junkie. I like reading the news. In fact, uh, there's been times I've had to like delete news apps off of my phone because I read them so frequently during the day. But I found myself sub- subconsciously, because it's a swipe situation, right? You know, apps on your phone, you can like move pretty quickly through things. Subconsciously flipping past news articles I didn't want to read because they were situations that were too hard to look at. War, famine, violence, things happening that were just ones that just triggered things for me that I didn't want to experience. And Sarah and I were talking about this. It took conscious effort, and still takes conscious effort, to scroll backwards to a story that I flipped over because I didn't want to look at it. And as we unpack that together, one of the features, one of the things that's going on in that kind of moment is we oftentimes choose, because we have insulation and margin and privilege, to only look at things that we want to look at and not look at the other things because we have the choice. And the reality is many people, namely the people dealing with that situation, don't have that choice. They can't look away from their own situation. And so one of the ways among many that we can engage the brokenness of humanity around us is to not look away, to hold a piece of that on us at a soul kind of level where we engage and say, I will listen, I will hear, I will experience, at least I will know something of what you're experiencing. And again, it's limited. We're not there. It's not firsthand. But I think the same temptation is here in Ruth that we'd move towards Ruth and Boaz and say, wow, wasn't it a fantastic story that God wrapped up with a nice, neat bow? Reality is, that's not how this story goes. This story is sticky and messy, and it hinges on three vulnerable women standing on a road about 1,200 years before Jesus walked on earth, wondering, where is God in all of this? Why is this happening? Did we fail? Did he fail? What happened? And they're put in an impossible situation where they have to look face on to their own vulnerability. You guys, we can't look away from that. This is the biblical narrative. This is where God is doing something. One of the questions Sarah keeps asking in this conversation is, where is God's goodness as we see this unfold? We taught on a series not too long ago. Uh, It was a Christmas series talking about how there's a necessary amount of cracking in our human story so that we can let light come in. That it's through the cracks that light enters and penetrates a dark and broken place. I've said it before, I don't know if I would hold it this way, this firmly, in light of this scenario, because I have a hard time attributing this to their situation, but I'll say it this way. We wouldn't know how good the truly good moments are without the truly horrible ones. I don't want to impose that on these three women put into this very difficult scenario. And yet from it, We have the opportunity to walk with them on this road, through these decisions, in these relationships, in this love story, and see where God's goodness is. Pick up your text again one more time. Orpah has kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and Ruth has clung to her. 
Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. You hear what Ruth says in this scenario. You hear how different this is than the way we use it in the modern American Christian uh, wedding ceremony. This isn't between Ruth and Boaz. This is between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law who are dealing with some heavy, heavy stuff. Where Naomi's trying to make herself more vulnerable for the good of her daughter-in-law. And Ruth is trying to make her mother-in-law safer and giving up her own security. One of the words that comes to mind here is this is this some kind of mutual sacrifice between these two women. They mutually give of what they have, which is very little, for the sake of the other. But here's where I think this gets even richer. We use that language in Christianity all the time, that we sacrifice. We talk about Jesus being a sacrifice or being sacrificial or encouraging us to be sacrificial. And I think oftentimes our only picture of that or one of the dominant ones becomes the temple of Israel and then fast forward to the cross of Christ and we have these very radical pictures of, of sacrifice. The issue is the intent here is not that they become the isolated icons of sacrifice they become the genesis of this metaphorical idea as it infiltrates the way that we live life. And what we see in these two women, in very practical terms, the form of their sacrifice is to embrace their own vulnerability for the sake of somebody else. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who say, I cannot engage with our homeless community in Portland because I'm too scared. It's a true thing. You feel quite vulnerable. Someone having a mental health episode is extremely challenging. It puts us in a situation where things go on in our brains that tell us, get out of here. Go a different direction. We have to believe, I have to believe, that something like that is going on in, in the brains of these two women. Stay safer. Don't give this up. Don't give up the security you found. Go back to Moab, Ruth, or take Ruth with you, Naomi, and they look at each other and they both decide to embrace their own vulnerability for the good of the person standing across from them. This is wild and radical love right here. This is the kind of love that stories are written about. And one was. This relationship between these two women becomes the centerpiece of this piece of scripture. And it helps begin to get at where is the goodness, where is God's goodness in the middle of this tragically broken situation. The fingerprints of God here are among two imperfect people. One who's overtly saying, I am bitter and I don't know where God is, is in this. Where we see two broken people give up a whole bunch of security of their own for the sake of the other person. Ruth, as she says these words, and they become iconic for many different cultures and many different eras of people following God. 
as she says these words, they embody what it means to be sacrificial for the sake of another person. She gives up her future as a wife. She gives up the potential of being buried in her homeland. She gives up all of her gods and says, I will follow your God. That God is the God I'm with. And the reason she gives all of that up as a person is Naomi, is their relationship. What I love about this moment in this storyline, as challenging as it is for me to apprehend it, to get inside of it and feel it and be participant with it, what I love about this story is it may be one of the clearest demonstrations of how crummy life actually is for humans and demonstrate how two humans can still navigate how to love one another in the middle of something tragically difficult. We talk about it a lot in American Christianity. We even use the language here at Church of the City. But if we were boiling things down in the storyline of Scripture to what this is all about, what it is to be human, what it is to follow God, what it is to participate in this faith community, it boils down to relationships. Fundamentally, a relationship we have with a creator and a relationship we have with one another. What we see in this moment is all the variables of people's culture, context, of their situation, of, of things that have happened to them, things that they're choosing to do. We see two people wrestling with that. So let me give you this little gift. As you are wrestling with your own brokenness and the brokenness of the world around you, and when you're tempted to go back to trite, simplistic sayings of what it means to love the people around you, flip back to this particular moment in the lives of these three women. Choose to look at their pain. Choose to do your best to apprehend this scenario, the situation, and hold it at the center of your decision-making. Choose to let this have some bearing on the way that you treat the people around you the next time you feel vulnerable in a situation. And when you're at these crossroads, which happen in small ways and big ways in our lives, I, I just encourage you, let this situation speak. Let this situation and this expression of mutual sacrifice, of giving up someone's and your own security for the sake of somebody else. Now here's a difficulty in narrative sections. It's hard to know where to stop. So we're going to put a little bit of the pause on this particular storyline. We're going to pick it up next week. We're actually going to rewind the tape a bit and go back into some of this section as it has a huge impact on what happens next. But as we linger here at this particular moment in these three women's lives, my encouragement is that somehow, some way, don't look away. Let's pray. God, this morning, I'm extremely grateful for these three women. I don't know them personally. I feel so far removed culturally and in time. I feel the barriers of my own story getting in the way of understanding theirs. But God, I pray that we would listen. 
pray that you would help us listen. God, I pray that as this moment among these three women has found its way into these scriptures, God, you you have something that you're doing among us and among other people through this story. God, I pray that we would find it. God, we need we need more of these kinds of moments in Scripture that find their way in the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we act and the way that we speak. So God, help us see your goodness without minimizing people or a situation. God, also with feeling like it's too far and too out of reach, help us be a part of what you're doing here in Portland the same kind of way you were among these three women. God, we love you. We need your help. We need your hope. We need your love as we follow your ways to love the people around us. Pray all this in your name. Amen.